0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the latest edition of our orbital podcast series. And I'm delighted today to have as our guest Sean Greer. Hello, Sean.
2: Hi. Thank you for having me. It's
0: oh, it's an absolute delight. I can assure you, I've been wanting to do a podcast with you for ages. So I'm delighted to have got you. So, and I'm looking forward to this discussion. Now, Sean is someone who really is very well known for lots of reasons and many of our listeners will be very familiar with Sean, and what she does, her practice, her background. But I'm going to quickly summarize for you a little bit about Shan's background because it's a, it's, a, it's a very, very interesting and illustrious one. Shan is both a practitioner and an arbitrator. She qualified, well, she's qualified in more than one jurisdiction, as a solicitor, she's qualified as a solicitor in England and Wales, and she's also a barrister in St Lucia. So she has incredible experience in both England Wales and the Caribbean. By nationality, she is both St Lucian and Canadian, and she has a very interesting practice profile, particularly well known in construction, engineering, oil and gas cases, and practiced a number of very, very interesting matters in those fields, and has also had several arbitrator appointments, both as chair and as arbitrator in panels of three, and a sole arbitrator. So a really delightful guest to have, and also one that I'm very proud to say stands for All that's best in diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that's something that we are going to talk about in the course of this podcast, because Sean, and I hope you won't mind me saying, is an inspirational figure for so many people, both female and male, from an ethnic background. And uh, I'm looking forward to this discussion, Sean. So, having given you, I hope, a suitably um, nice introduction... Let me dive straight into this, Sean. So what first interested you in the law?:
2: Yeah, so I'm going to that was a very good introduction. I'm going to try to do it justice. So um, when, when I was a kid, my dad and I used to watch Perry Mason and Colombo when I was very young on a Saturday evening. And although now that I'm old, I appreciate that those shows weren't an accurate representation of the justice system. It did always resonate with me that at the end of the day, the bad guy lost and they found the person who did the naughty thing. And I must be honest, I can't say that that made me want to be a lawyer because at the time I wasn't. interested in more sexy, you know, professions like being a singer or being a travel agent. I wanted to travel. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) You know, I wasn't thinking, gee, I want to be a a lawyer. That was not the the top of my my list. But then I went to a a Catholic school, an all girls Catholic school. And in religious education, um, we had to do a mock trial. And in the mock trial, somebody had to represent Jesus. And the argument was, The crime he was is that he rose from the dead and we had to have this trial about whether or not he did or didn't rise as stated in the Bible. And I remember I was representing Jesus and we went through the whole process. We had a jury and I really went to town. I enjoyed it. And in the end, I lost. And I was very angry because I think this is, you know, even from a young age, I knew that the, the worst kind of loss <laughs> is you feel you don't yeah. deserve, you know, the unjust yeah. loss. Absolutely. And in that one, yeah. And in that one, the the jury, because of course they wanted to get a, said, well, you know, even we must believe that Jesus rose because it's in the Bible. If it's in the Bible, we can't believe the Bible. What can we believe? And I thought, what? On the facts, I won. <laughs> but in any you event. You did. Yeah. Yeah. But in any event, after doing that case, I said, yeah, I think I could do this. I think I would enjoy, you know, being a lawyer. And I think that's the moment when I seriously decided that this was something that I wanted to do.
0: Well, that is a great uh, you know, way to sort of get the law bug. I, I know I like that. And, uh, As a matter of no, fact, what
2: I remember the most is when I came home, I was really upset And, you know, my mother was cooking in the kitchen and I said to her, mommy, you're not going to believe this. I lost. I'm so upset. And she said, well, why? Why are you upset? And um, I said, because I can't believe that, you know, I lost. And she says, what did you learn from this? I said, well, I learned that I like being lawyer." She goes, well, now, you know, you like lawyering. Focus on that. Go in the TV and just let me finish dinner. But, you know, it's the point (laughs) you can lose, but you can still take a lesson from it. Oh, yeah. still take that to this day
0: <laughs> yeah no i mean no it's it's very true it's uh, it's yeah. so true so then as i said in the in the introduction you've got a very interesting professional background mm-hmm. you're you're qualified in the caribbean you're also qualified here in england and wales so tell us a little bit about how your genesis of your yeah. career came to be
2: yeah so I was born and for a large part of my youth raised in Canada, and I finished high school there and then I wanted to become a lawyer. And um, my parents were not too sure whether or not I would last because I was changing my mind to a whole lots of other things. So they said, well, look, if you want to be a lawyer, we think you probably need to get some experience first to decide if this is what you really want to do. And so I had an uncle in St. Lucia who was a QC, had a law firm, and they said, why don't you go and spend the summer working with him, get a sense of whether you like it or not, and then you can go do law. And so that's what I did. I went to work with him, and he was British trained. So he said, you need to go to England, and you need to become a barrister there. And so that's what I did. I went to London, I be I, pra- I did my degree, did the bar, qualified, and then I came back and I worked in St. Lucia for about five years. Now, during that five years, that's when I became really interested in construction law. But the challenge you have when you're on a small island, because St. Lucia has a population of 160,000, it's really difficult to specialize. And I knew from that point, you know, construction and arbitration is what I wanted to do. And so I left St. Lucia, I came back to England, and then I worked with, I I re-qualified as a solicitor. And then I practiced in, in London for some time. And then once I felt I had enough experience, then I came back to establish a regional construction arbitration practice. I was really lucky. Uh, I got my first arbitration fairly, comparatively speaking, relatively early in my career. And that path just seemed to develop naturally. So now, until I think probably about five years ago, I moved to only doing neutral work. And then in January of this year, I started working with the arbitration center in BVI.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's an incredible uh, journey you've had and and how you transitioned your practice now. And, you know, you, um, you're part of Arbitra International as well
1: mm-hmm. on their
0: roster. And as I say, you take appointments in a number of significant cases. So one of the things I was going to ask you is that in terms of making that transition to becoming a... And you also, I should have said in the introduction, you also sit as a mediator. But in terms of making that transition to become an arbitrator and a mediator, which is now your, I think it's your full-time practice now. Yes. What were the challenges that you faced in transitioning that practice to that of an arbitrator?
2: Yeah. I don't want to sound like I'm minimizing the challenges, but I always say that I was raised in a family who didn't think the challenges were problems. They were just opportunities. So anytime anything was difficult, you know, you came home sad, our parents would spin us to, well, how can you turn this an opportunity and move forward? They, they took nothing as an excuse for you not pursuing your dreams or or achieving your goals. And so for me... Uh, When I encountered challenges, I didn't see them as something which stopped me from getting where I had to go. I just saw it as an indication that I needed to go in a different direction. And some of the movements that I have made, they were simply because the traditional routes were not available. And so I had to find another way to get where I was going. In terms of the challenges, I think it's fair to say that if you don't come from a traditional jurisdiction that's known for arbitration, it's very difficult to get appointments, even in the countries where you live. So I live in St. Lucia, and if someone had to pick between me and someone from England, chances are they're going to pick England. That's just the culture, and and fighting against that is very difficult. And so um, one of the things that I had to do was go back to the traditional jurisdictions, establish yourself there, and then come back to say, oh, look, <laughs> I'm certified by everybody else. Will you take me seriously now? And it meant a lot of moving around. It meant a lot of um, hit and miss. And I, think, and I think this is the part that certainly the younger generation may not be as good at appreciating. It takes a lot of failure. You, you have to do it, have it not work, accept that it hasn't worked and then try again. And so I've been very good at failing. <laughs> and that's probably how I got here because I, I don't want to pretend that I just made a decision and everything worked out. It's, it's not like that. I went to conferences, I bombed. And then I said, okay, what went wrong here? How do I do it? You go to the next conference, you change, you, you try. And and I think the most difficult mm. ones is when the people who are there make you feel like you're wrong for wanting to have a seat at the table. Mm. And I found those were the most challenging positions. I remember the first time I wanted to be an arbitrator and there was this guy and I will not mention his name and he was very influential. So I was at a conference and I walked to him and said, listen, I want to be an arbitrator. Can you tell me? And he looked at me, he says, um, Where where are you from? And he sort of took my details. So I got all excited. And he says, uh, do you have a Redfern and Hunter? And I said, no. He says, well, how do you expect to be an object if you don't even have a textbook? And I thought... Terrible. (laughs) And in my mind, I thought, okay, this must be one of those moments, you know, um, with... uh, What's that thing with the Kung Fu movie? I can't remember, you know? Oh, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, where I the sensei tells yeah, us yeah, the... Yeah, 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 yeah. I went off and bought my Redford and Hunter, which wasn't two cents. No, at no, no. Because, you know, I was just about 30. So I, bet I said, I got a Redford and Hunter. You know, I'm ready. And he just sort of looked at me like, why, why are you harassing me? It was that, and it was so mm. deflating that I thought, okay, clearly this is not a place for me to be. And he he made it clear that in his opinion, the fact that I kept trying to enter this arena, mm. what bothered him. But having said that, and, and I will say, I remember going to, kept going at the customer and said, you know, you got to keep at it. And I met a gentleman by name of Murray Smith and we ended up having a conversation. And he said, well, what is it that you want to do? So I told him, well, I know it's really difficult but you know I would like to be an arbitrator. He says, "Well, no, why is that difficult?" I said, "Well, I know I don't have." He says, "No, no, no, no. If you want to be an arbitrator, you can be an." And he was so positive and and in his mind he, he he was like, "I don't understand." You know, he was confused as to why you would think you don't belong here, and he opened several doors for me. You know, he introduced me to persons. He created options for me to have speaking opportunities. So while there are people who aren't as receptive there are the people out there who aren't you just have to keep at it, and it's getting as the young people say the ls
0: <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, well exactly no,
2: every five ls there's one double no,
0: <laughs> no you know I've gotta tell you, Sean, just listening to that that segment alone, the last few minutes, yeah in sporting parlance, that's yeah. worth the admission ticket in itself because yeah. that that was it was very inspirational, I mean, you know I. as you were talking, I not only found it very uplifting, but it also reminded me so much of things that I encountered as a young aspiring lawyer. I mean, I'm now, you know, a rather old one. But, you know, when I first started out 30 odd years ago, 30, now 31, 32 years ago, it was exactly like you say, there were very few people who would actually you know give you the time of day and uh, and the and the, that sense of support wasn't there thank goodness for murray i mean what yeah. you said about murray smith mm-hmm. i mean he's he's clearly been a very major influence in what you've done yeah. and that allied with the fact that on a family level and family is of course very important to all of us seeing a challenge as an opportunity And I think, you know, this is a great, I know, I really, I really love what you've said there. And, you know, now that you've done all of this, I mean, one of the things that's also very important in the sense that you're now able to be someone people can aspire to. Mm -hmm. And you're one of a very rare breed, if I may say, in the international arbitration world. You are female and you're black. And there are very few arbitrators, and I mean someone like you who is very successful. There are very few people like you out there, and relatively young, on top
2: of that. <laughs> oh well,
0: well, 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 yeah, well, which, 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 which even further crowns your success.
2: Funny. Well, it's funny because I didn't know about the male pale stale thing until yeah. after that, in yeah. I spoke to French that depression is known for being pale, male, and stale. And so I when I told my mother that, because I, I took it really bad, now, and I'll be honest with you, which I probably, I don't, I cried. That's how upset I was about the whole thing. So I spoke to my mom and she said, I said, mommy, I'm not pale, male, or stale and I'll never get it, never be an arbitrary Because well, you're going to get old. So you at least, at some point, you're going to take one box. So just keep <laughs> at it. Maybe one and all. At some point, well, just keep at
0: it. <laughs> what's satisfying is that you've done it with and yeah. you look very young if i may say yeah and uh <laughs> you, you know you've done very very well you know that's it's all about and i'm sure you, this is very much in your thinking and and in mm. fact i know it is that mm. you can inspire so many other people yeah to want to be like you yeah. and i think that's the great thing because we not only have out there in the market too few female arbitrators who are regularly appointed and who have significant market profiles. We have very few of an ethnically diverse background. And so it's wonderful to see you doing so well out there and inspiring so many. In terms of that, I mean, what more? I mean, I know that we can all do what we do to set an example, but how can the market, particularly the institutions do more to champion female and ethnically diverse arbitrators?
2: I think it starts, to my mind, with honest conversations. I think very often we have these sorts of gratuitous platitudes where everyone puts on their profile, you know, we, are, we believe in equity and we believe in inclusion. And just to be clear, and I, I may get a little flack for this, but in my opinion or my experience, I don't think that our profession is filled with a lot of really horrible racist people. I don't think that that exists. I think for the most part, we operate in a very competitive environment. And, you know, when I think of some of my experiences, they say, if you try to empathize with someone else, on the best day, you are only relevant to the last case. And every time you move forward, there's another younger generation clipping at your heels and they're faster, they're better. I mean, when I do some of these mood competitions, I am blown away by the talent that exists this day. I am fairly certain if I was- I agree, now. I don't know how it survives. Yes. I mean, the quality oh, is exceptional, so when I agree. you're in in, a, in an environment like that, it's difficult not to be self interested. And as human beings, we're innately self interested. We're, we're always going to want to put ourselves first. So you're asking people to create a space for everyone to thrive. And I think we have to be honest about certain realities. And the truth of the matter is, there are some biases that we all have. I know when I first started going to conferences, the first thing I would do when I entered the room was look to see if there were any other black people. And if there weren't, my heart would sink because in my mind there is no one here who's going to identify with the struggle that I would. When I saw someone, I was like, "Oh my goodness!" And then you say, "Okay, no black people. Let me look for the next brown person or the next minority." Yes, or the I next agree. Person of color. I agree. And it's only because you knew there was a vulnerability of going in a space where you felt you didn't belong. And while I know that the chances are that people who White people may not necessarily have that experience, but they come to the table with their own issues and their own biases. And certain times you just don't see it. And so very often we pick people who look like us, not because we hate the ones that don't, just because there's a level of familiarity. And I think we have to create a space where people can be honest and have honest conversations about that and not be afraid to say, look, this is not something that um, I thought about. This is not something that I am actively doing. And then just create a space where everybody has a fair chance. I always say, I don't ever want to be chosen for an arbitration job because I'm Black or because I'm a woman. And I think anybody who's good at their job doesn't want to be chosen. At some point, a person of color has always been the token. You've always said, oh, come here, be on, our, on the cover of our brochure so people know we have, you know, a few brown people. Nobody likes that feeling. And certainly when I was at school and they put, you didn't like that. You didn't like people using you in that way. It didn't seem genuine. And I think we have to start having genuine conversation about how can we allow everyone to feel like they have a fair shot? And, and, and that's where I think diversity needs to go, as opposed to the everyone saying, yes, no, let's just pick people for picking sick.
0: No, that's so true. That's yes, that's yes. that's so true. And, you know, again, that's really inspiring what you just said. I think a lot of people listening to this will be incredibly inspired by what you've just said, because it's that self-belief. I think what you're portraying there so clearly is we all can have imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. of one kind or the other insecurities and frankly we wouldn't be human if we didn't have those traits but it's about belief that you deserve that seat at the table on merit Mm -hmm. and you know it's it's that sort of thing that i think really drives people and I think, you know, honest conversations, like you say, are also really, really important. Now, I think that's such a interesting thing. And, you know, and thank you for sharing your thoughts so candidly, because, you know, these are, I, I can tell you, these are the sorts of things that our listeners really enjoy yeah. in these podcasts, because as, as much as people love to attend every conference there is, we can't. And we can't meet, people like Sean Greer every day of the week. But this gives people the opportunity to hear your thoughts candidly, which is great. You know, let me turn to a slightly different area now, if I may, mm-hmm. which is, and just so our listeners know, these podcasts are not scripted. I mean, these are very impromptu discussions that we have, and, uh, and I hope that comes across in these podcasts to our listeners. Arbitration is a wonderful dispute resolution mechanism. Of that, there's no doubt, and it is quite clearly the preferred mechanism for dispute resolution in so many areas of international business. But you and I both know, Sean, that it can be improved.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's not the finished article, and there are lots of blemishes in the concept of arbitration. Okay. I just wonder whether you can give us some thoughts as to, you know, just a couple of, our th- of your thoughts as to how arbitration can be improved, from your perspective?
2: I think the difficulty of, from my perspective, there is what we sell as the arbitration product, and it is based on party autonomy. So these two parties make a decision about how they want their dispute to be resolved, and we're going to respect this decision that they've made. And that's what you learn in school or university. And then you go into the real and you realize very often the clients aren't really making the decisions about arbitration it's in fact the lawyers and I think very often lawyers will make decisions about arbitration clauses without understanding the commercial context. And I know this is something that firms have been moving towards more more recently. Certainly in the last ten years, because I know um, when I started law, there was no discussion about being commercial, or, you know, or understanding commercial issues. We focused on the law, and so absolutely, yeah. But now. Um, the bottom line is the law is just a tool. It operates in a real context. And if it doesn't work in the real context, then it's of no value. So I think the arbitration clause is where we start. And it's not just a matter of, you know, pop out, pop in, pop out, pop in, but actually looking at the transaction itself and saying, is this going to provide value to the parties? I know in a Caribbean context, very often people will use arbitration clauses and the, because we don't have as developed practice, they'll just take one from another contract and slot it in, or they'll just put a one-liner and then things go horribly wrong. And they're like, oh, this arbitration thing, it was, you know, it was more expensive in such a way. So it's like, no, it's just a tool and it's how you use it. So I think getting the, ensuring that the clause matches the transaction is the first one. The other difficulty you have is, you know, we're all going to play nice when we're signing contracts. But when you get to the dispute, it's almost impossible to get people to agree. And again, when we teach and we talk about arbitration, we're assuming that both parties want the process to be timely and cost effective. But the reality is we've all had clients who've, who've made it clear that their objective is not for this process to be costly and time sensitive. Very often the parties have their own objectives and what may have worked for them and what they may have wanted at the start of the project when they thought everything was going to be going well may be very different later on. I mean, let's be honest, My, your goals or intentions when you signed the contract um, before COVID is going, was going to be very different afterwards. And if you were going into an arbitration pre and post, what you were thinking about and the cost associated with your arbitration is dependent on that would be very different. And so I think we have to have an honest conversation, particularly with our clients about what arbitration can realistically do, how flexible it can realistically be, and how do we get that value once the, you know, dispute has, has, has arisen. And I think the, the arbitrators, have quite a few tools at their disposal. And certainly, you know, the good thing about a lot of the conferences, they're constantly telling us how we can use technology and, and, and whatnot to try and get and better management tools to try and get a handle on the cost.
0: Thank you. Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, all re- you know, really, really valuable insights as to uh, as to the process and the concept of arbitration and how we can all, think about it differently no thank you for that that's no again very very uh impactful thoughts there sean now we unfortunately are coming towards the end of our podcast mm-hmm. time has flown by and as uh, the executive producers of these podcasts know i could go on for a long lot for a lot longer but uh, i can't and i'm not allowed to and quite rightly so so but we, we always end these podcasts and i've absolutely loved speaking to you having this conversation with you shan yes. we always like to end these podcasts with a little bit of a fun round and like like a non law bit and a non arbitration non mediation non litigation bit And so this is no different, Chan. I'm going to ask you just a few little quickfire questions. What's your favorite type of music, band or singer?
2: All right. So this is, I am Caribbean, so I am closer or partial to Caribbean music. Mm -hmm. But having said that, I literally listen to music across the board And when I was young, I used to get teased a lot because a lot of the music I listened to is not traditionally listened by Black people. So I got Oreo a lot. And I also sang classical music when I was in high school. So I have a fair example, but the song I think that resonates with me the most are by India Ari. Oh, yes, yes. She's a a Black American performer. And it's just, you know, she's the prophet of Black women. And so a lot of her songs are very inspirational. So so I think I, I lean to her, yeah.
0: No, she's great. Uh, yes. And I tell you, someone else who I really like, who's mm-hmm. also a, a, uh, a bit of a poet, is Erica Badu. Yes. I mean, she's got an incredible body of work and she's very innovative. She's very different.
2: Yeah.
0: So how about a favourite film?
2: Favourite film? Um, I like 2022. Oh, no, no. Okay, my most favourite film in the whole wide world is Peach Dragon. movie I ever saw when I was a kid. And I absolutely loved it and another one which I'm afraid to say because it's my what I call my actual favorite because my daughter told me that it's inappropriate but when we were kids we were very much into musicals and so there was a musical called seven brides for seven brothers and I come from a family of a very large family and so we would uh, act out these things so I showed my daughter and just a nutshell, it's these seven brothers. They can't get wives, so they kidnap these women in the city and they bring them back to their homes. And then one of the women gets pregnant and then the fathers make them all marry, all seven brothers mother or seven wives. And my daughter tells me, Mommy, do you realize that this is problematic? I said, yes, it's problematic, but the songs are really good. So yeah, that's well, my favorite one, that and Peach Dragon. Oh, I love it. It's Thank
0: fantastic. You. If I'm not mistaken, isn't Seven Brides or Seven Wives? Doesn't that star Howard Keel?
2: No, seven, seven Brothers. Seven oh, oh, oh! oh <laughs> so,
0: so, sorry, Seven Brides, Seven Brothers. Okay, <laughs> there, it might be a different film then. But no, that's, 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 that's superb. And yeah. then, okay, now you're blessed to live in a very beautiful part of the world, right? Yes. So, But apart from the Caribbean, are there any other places in the world that you really love to visit?
2: I, because when you live on an island, you tend to, to like... I, I love cities, especially Europe, because of the history. My two favorite cities are Barcelona, because of the Sagrada Familia. I'm just obsessed with it. I just mm, the whole history absolutely. of it is really amazing. And I also like Portugal, because I think it has a good balance of, you know... It has a tropical feel, but you still get, you know, the, the European history. Yeah, these these I think are the places that I like to visit. As a matter of fact, that's I'm going my daughter's turning twenty one in two weeks and that's that's where we're headed. So yeah.
0: Oh wonderful. Well yeah. uh, have a lovely time and a very happy birthday in advance to your daughter. It's a landmark birthday.
1: Fantastic.
0: Yes, you know Oh look, it's been an absolute delight, Sean, to speak to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to be such a wonderful podcast guest it's a real privilege and an honor to do this one with you i've been wanting to do this podcast with you for a long time you're much admired by many including myself and oh, thank uh, you
2: That's
0: and great. you know i wish you all continued success and i look forward to meeting you in person sometime very very soon so thank, thank you, you Sean. thank you
2: very much for having me. It's been a pleasure
1: arbitral insights is a reed smith production our producer is ali mccardle For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email arbitralinsights at reedsmith.com. To learn about the Reed Smith Arbitration Pricing Calculator, a first-of-its-kind mobile app that forecasts the costs of arbitration around the world, search Arbitration Pricing Calculator on reedsmith.com, or download for free through the Apple and Google Play app stores. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.